Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is All in the Family, a former $1.3 billion Wells Fargo advisor and building a multi-generational firm. It's a conversation with Larry Boggs, the founder and president of Boggs & Company Wealth Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. I love a good family business story, especially those who not only have family members working with them, but extend that same family designation to other team members and their clients. And such is the case with former Wells Fargo lifer Larry Boggs and his team, three of which are his daughters. After 45 years at Wells and building the business to managing a billion three in assets, Larry made the decision in 2021 to launch independent firm Boggs & Company Wealth Management with LPL Strategic Wealth Services, a supported independence platform. But it wasn't an easy decision to make that leap. As a matter of fact, Larry said he vetted more than 15 other firms before choosing independence with LPL. So why now? Because as Larry shares, after more than four decades with Wells and its predecessors, he decided it was time to run the business on their own terms and serve clients as they see fit. That is, like family. Plus, he saw the handwriting on the wall. As Larry shared in an interview after his transition, the industry was evolving and it became obvious we needed to update our approach to the business. And like many others who opt for independence, Larry was craving greater control and flexibility for now and into the future. So what does that future look like for Larry Boggs and his team? Was making the leap the right decision? Are they now better able to support their clients without the constraints of a larger firm agenda? Lewis Diamond asks him these questions and many more, so let's get to it. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Lewis, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Very good. So let's jump in. Can you please tell us about yourself and what was your why for becoming an advisor back when you joined the industry? I need to give you a little bit of background, Lewis. I grew up in Western Maryland, where my practice is located now. And at an early age, I was the son of a golf pro. And I spent most of my youth on a golf course, working at the golf course, doing all kinds of odd jobs for my dad and grew up around people that talked about the stock market. But what changed everything, I met a man by the name of Joe Dodge, which was a partner with Butcher and Sherrod back in the day. And he took a fondness to me. And turns out that as a child, or I should say a youngster, 
all the money that I made, I directed to Joe and he put it in the market for me. And early on, I become somewhat addicted to the stock market. And with his mentoring, by the time I was in high school, I was, I don't want to say a trader, but a good investor. And Joe said to me about halfway through my high school days, Larry, after you go to college, you're going to come and work for me. Well, that was kind of history and destiny. I ended up going to the University of Maryland on a golf scholarship, graduated from Maryland in finance, and took a summer off. And by the following fall, I was working for Joe. And the rest is kind of history. I love it. So it was just the kind of by, by happenstance, being exposed to the markets and following someone you liked and admired, and you got a glimpse of the power of the markets. I like that. Well, and Lewis, I tell you what, by the time I was 13, 14, 15, my dad would have me out playing with members all the time because they needed one more player to round out a foursome. And there was always conversation with these wealthy people about the market. So to be part of the conversation early on, I took it upon myself to be a little knowledgeable, at least for a kid. And it worked out well for me. It sounds like a great growth strategy too, probably later on, getting rich people on the golf course to give you their money. I haven't used that as much as I should, but it is a, a good opportunity to, to get around people. <laughs> Perfect. So we talked about you joining Butcher and Singer, but then you moved over to Wells Fargo in 1990. Can we talk a little bit about your journey through the industry and then obviously led to the launch of Boggs & Company as a independent wealth manager in 2021. So if you don't mind, let's, why don't we talk a little bit about the evolution of your career? Well, Lewis, for the first 47 years of my career, it was all Butcher and Sherrod, Butcher Singer, Wheat First Butcher Singer, Wachovia, a total of nine different firms that led to Wells Fargo. I never changed companies for the most part, hardly ever changed a desk. So I may have made one career change in my life, and that was about a year and a half ago when we spun off Boggs and Company. Wow. So one proactive career change, but many different names on your FINRA broker check and many different cultures that you and your clients were exposed to. Absolutely. I tell you what, my background with Butcher and Sherrod, Butcher Singer, a 200, 300 advisor company that ended up as a 15,000 company with major cultural changes. So each time there was a change of control or change of ownership, did it give you pause and give you an opportunity to go out and explore the market? Because we see this pretty often with a lot of the broker-dealer sales, whether it's with independent broker-dealers or even full-service ones, be it Merrill to Bank of America in the financial crisis, et cetera, et cetera, that it does give advisors a kind of fresh perspective to go out and kind of gives themselves permission to make sure they're at the right spot. So with all these different opportunities, were you just loyal to the platform or did you not really see something else that was better enough to justify the hassle at the time? I would describe it this way. Through the changes, I was actively solicited by many firms and I didn't really do a deep dive with any of them. I was comfortable and I was probably most comfortable with the people. I was close to management. I was close to a lot of the advisors. We kind of grew up together. And it was a culture that I really, really liked. So I had the opportunity, but I never really pursued it. Makes sense. Yeah, it served you all those years, regardless of what happened. The, the people seems like stayed relatively consistent and it worked and clearly worked very well. For sure. So why don't you tell us about your business? How much in assets is your firm managing today? How many clients about the team? Anything you want to share just to give us some perspective on the incredible business that you've built over the years? Well, Lewis. Before we left Wells Fargo, my team 
managed about 1.3 billion. We moved in the course of about nine months, approximately 1.1 billion dollars. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And our practice is not the 50 million dollar family. It's a very diverse practice. We have about 1,500 clients. Larry personally is involved between 300 and 400 of them, and the rest of my team services them. My team structure is quite unique, I think, for the industry. We have two males and 10 female in the home office, and we have three others that are virtual assistants, having three daughters on the team and that have been very instrumental in the transfer or the transition. But I am one that grew up with a bunch of daughters, and I am one that really actively promotes women in the workforce. I'm actively involved right now with some recruiting a number of women advisors that I think will join our team, hopefully by the end of the year. So the practice is in three locations, one in Cumberland, Maryland, one in McHenry or Deep Creek, Maryland, and one in Bedford, Pennsylvania. It's an incredible story. I mean, we have a lot to unpack with the remarkable success of the transition. I want to ask you too about just what was it that was responsible for driving that much growth over the years. But I think what's most interesting and differentiated is what you said about the split of your team. Aside from working with your daughters, just the fact that it's overwhelmingly female in an industry that's overwhelmingly male. I resonate with a lot of what you said in our firm where we're four males and 11 females. And for a while it was one male and about 11 females and also work in a family business. So let's talk a little bit about your daughters. What are their roles? How do they influence the business? I would love to just learn a little bit more about the family dynamics. Sure. So that's fair. During the transition, I delegated to each of them different responsibilities. And each of them have different skill sets and strengths and weaknesses. And even with the whole team, I really try to find the strength and then delegate all the responsibility to that strength. So my youngest daughter is primarily my COO, my CFO. Her whole background is finance and accounting. She came out of Wharton, was in the corporate world for about 10 years and worked for Barclays and other companies. So she had the background to do it. My middle daughter, Marjana, is the creative one, and she has done all the design work, does all of our marketing. We've remodeled and rebuilt two new locations. She handles much of that. My oldest daughter is more of the people person. Her job is really client satisfaction. I describe her as the person that is in charge of unusual acts of kindness where she surprises clients with whatever. At times it's challenging. I don't always agree with them. For the most part though, I've given them responsibility and go with what they recommend. They set me down and said, dad, you cannot get back into your old office. We got a new company. You're going to totally remodel the building. Well, that wasn't in the the plan for me, but I agreed and it turned out wonderful. So we're thrilled with it. Only one of them actively interfaces with clients as far as being an advisor. That's Marjana. The other thing that I've insisted upon with all my daughters, that they actively get involved in the community. So between one being a trustee of the local community college boards, one chair of the community foundation, one coaches special needs kids in soccer and basketball, one volunteers and all kinds of fundraising. I personally involved in the community in a fairly big way and in the state. I've insisted on them though, and they have bought into it very well and 
I really like what they're doing. And I think the community appreciates what we're doing. That's absolutely incredible. I love that, that it's a focus and it's a requirement. It's not that the requirement is they make a bunch of money and they bring in 10 new households a year. It's that they're actively giving back and perpetuating a certain culture in your firm. I'd love to just ask you about, it's somewhat unusual, well, one, having three daughters in the business, but more so the fact that only one of them is client facing. And it seems like she's not in a rainmaker capacity similar to you. So as you think about the business, the next generation, obviously you have a powerhouse of a team and you have all these very important components of running a business. But as you think about the next generation of client service and what comes after you want to step down or step away or scale back, how do you think about that? Is one or multiple of them going to step up to be an advisor or is it more hiring from the outside? Lewis, it's interesting you asked the question because we've had a lot of discussion within LPL, but also within Boggs and Company, exactly where that's going to take us. And we're still working on it. I am actively recruiting right now from a couple large teams, and I'm actively recruiting a number of standalone or small teams. Ultimately, we have to develop a next generation of advisors that 35 to 50-year-old or we need to merge with a equal in size or larger team only because with the book of business we have, ultimately we're going to need additional registered reps to, to service them. I have three seasoned assistants that have between 15 and 35 years with me that are not, they're all licensed, but they do not actively manage money per se. We've been talking with them about maybe them stepping up and take that role, but most likely I'll end up recruiting that 45-year-old. But recruiting is hard because it's critical to me that we find the culture, the mix that has the same objective and the same mindset towards clients and service in the clients that I do and the team has. Just because somebody does business or has experience doesn't mean it's going to be a good marriage to the Boggs and Company team. Right. Thank you for being open about that. And I don't think there's one right way to go about building a company. You seems like have the rock solid foundation. You built an incredible business. You have very, very capable heads in finance and operations and marketing and a really strong admin team. And then you're kind of going in the inverse. You're going out to find more advisors. A lot of groups that go independent or even just kind of build a business, no matter where they are, they start in the reverse. They have many advisors but they don't necessarily have the capacity and the folks on their team to help build the business. So again, I don't think there's a right way to do it. It seems like you're being proactive though about identifying what's next and not just getting comfortable in the fact that you got something great and you have a really good business, but thinking about the next 15, 20, however many years plus into the future. Lewis, I think you're right there. And the hope is that Boggs and Company doesn't die when I retire or die, it goes on indefinitely. And like any company, trying to put the building blocks in place so that there is a transition of control and power and management of the company. I think between the daughters, they can handle the management of the company without a problem. I think the real issue is getting a network of advisors in place to continue to service the great clients I have. And I've been, Lewis, very blessed with most of my families I've had for multiple decades, and many of them I'm on the second or third, in a few cases, the fourth generation of the family. I want that to be continued in the future when I'm not here. Absolutely. That makes plenty of sense to me. And the other thing is the second generation does not have to 
kind of do business, build the business, or even have similar skills as the first generation. I'm in something similar. And what I need to do to perpetuate the business is very different from what my mother Mindy did when she founded the firm. And I think you'll find the same thing where you now are in kind of act two of the business. And now you have this foundation, you have the capacity, you have the support to keep growing. And now it's just keep adding the right people onto the bus. So it seems like you guys are off to an amazing start. And let's just keep going and talking about the overall business. And let's move just to the conditions you felt as you were considering leaving Wells Fargo. So what was going on within your business or within Wells, let's say back in 2020 and 2021 before you made the move or put another way, what were the frustrations you were feeling or motivations to consider leaving in the first place? Let me give you one little background. Probably 15 years ago within Wells Fargo, I converted to a hybrid format called Profit Formula. And it was not independent, but it was one step closer to be independent. And the frustration at Wells for the last three or four years, and particularly the last few, everybody's pretty much aware of all the headline news that Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo Bank was giving us to deal with. And we started to lose some clients over it. Not a lot, but some in competitive situations, particularly in the nonprofit area, which we do a lot, it was becoming an obstacle, a significant piece of business that we were going to bid on and compete for. And many of the board members were already clients of mine. They told me point blank, don't bother. There's no way that we can give this business to Wells Fargo. Even though it's you, you Mm -hmm. can't get the business. That was kind of a wake-up call. And I don't want to say that was the determining factor and The intimacy that I mentioned to you earlier, Lewis, about being close to management, being close to individual advisors, the traders on all the desks by name, it was getting to the point where there was mutiny all over the place. And I even pursued looking at Wells Fargo's pretty much independent model of finance. And in talking with them, I got the same feeling that it was, well, it's the same Wells Fargo. I basically took about two years, believe it or not, starting to talk to companies, interviewing companies, meeting with companies. And I've probably talked to 20 different companies over that two-year period, all kinds of companies. And being very honest, I talked with them and talked with them and eventually pretty much got it down to three. And then pretty much my youngest daughter and I did a deep dive and middle daughter was part of the discussion on which one to finally decide on. And we ultimately decided on LPL, and I got to tell you, we're thrilled that we made the right decision. After saying that, I think we could have picked either of the other two that we didn't join, and I think we would have been better off than we were at Wells. So 20 firms, it's, it's hard to even name 20 firms just off the top of my head. It, it seems like they probably span independent firms and more full-service W-2 firms. Is that accurate? Or were you only looking at options where you business owner? I really looked everywhere, Lewis. I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know what they offered. I didn't know the finances or the structure of it. And it was a learning process for me. Interesting. Well, it seems like you could have benefited from some of what we do, which is helping to simplify the due diligence process. So maybe saved you a little bit of time, but all decisions, I think, lead you to where we're ultimately supposed to be. So if you hadn't gone down that path yourself, maybe you wouldn't have found what seems like was the right fit in LPL. It's 
definitely been the right fit for us, I believe. Terrific. So what about the people at Wells? What else was it now with a year or two of hindsight? Did you love about Wells or did you really benefit from that you miss? I view not just Wells, but I view my whole career with all the predecessor firms. As it became Wells, it became more corporate. It became more structure. It felt like lawyers were running the company. There was little being done to promote Larry's practice versus early on, it was much different. Social media was not encouraged. Changing your web page was a challenge. Larry got pretty frustrated all the way around mm-hmm. and finally said, Hey, we got to do something. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, being in profit formula, which for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term, it is like Larry said, the hybrid version within Wells where you're an employee, but you're on your own PL. You get a higher payout and you have many aspects of independence, but you're still an employee. So I would assume from a compensation standpoint, you're probably doing pretty good, especially with a billion plus in assets. So the move, I would guess, wasn't about the financial side. It was more about lifestyle and more about ownership and control. Is that accurate? Lewis, absolutely. I can honestly say none of the transition was dollars and cents. It was, Mm -hmm. let's call it a new adventure, a new journey. The ability to run the business and spend my capital the way I wanted to spend it and how I thought it should be spent, not looking at limitations that the company would give you on how many accounts you should have or what accounts you had to give away or how many assistants that you hire or how much promotion you do or how much donations you do in your community. It was my dollars and cents. And that really, really appealed to me. Hmm. That all makes sense, Larry, that you wanted the discretion to invest in the business that that you saw fit. So with more profits, instead of just taking it as income, you got to decide how you wanted to deploy that capital instead of having more of a prescriptive formula for how your payout got spent. So I completely get that. But let's talk a little bit about Finet. So what's very unique about Wells compared to most other firms in the industry is that you have all these different ways to affiliate. So you were in there Profit Formula, which is part of their W-2 arm. They have an RA custodian. And then probably the most popular pivot point within the firm is Wells Fargo Finet, which is their independent arm. So many, many teams, especially successful ones, are moving from the W-2 side to independence with Finet. So you don't have to repaper, and it's a seemingly much easier move. How much did you consider the internal move? Because you could have had a higher payout to invest in the business. You would have had ownership. You would have had more control over marketing. So what was it about Finet or about what you wanted to accomplish that was incongruent with staying put? So Lewis, in the early discussion with Finet, my sense was that, yes, I'm going to go be independent and have a better opportunity to spend my capital the way I wanted to. A lot of my friends that had been with Wells eventually into Finet and been with Finet six, seven, eight years starting to leave Finet. We're very disgruntled with Finet. And these were teams, give or take, the same size as mine. These were relatively Mm -hmm. sizable teams. And internally when Finet, when you see those people and they've been in the system, they're moving away. It was kind of a red flag to me. And, And I won't mention names, but many of them have moved on to other firms or set their own firms up just clearing with other people. I didn't have a warm and fuzzy with Finet. I mean, I kind of felt like they were interested, but not interested a whole lot. 
And I said, thank you, but no thank you. And we went a different direction. Understood. That makes sense. Larry, do you think your decision to leave Wells was driven more by frustrations or more by the pull to become a business owner? It's absolutely a combination of both. I wanted more control of my own destiny, running my own practice, making my own decisions. But there was great frustration with Wells and the direction that Wells was going. And I describe it that we got to a point at Wells where every decision seemed to be driven by a lawyer making some kind of legal scenario. And I'm not talking about compliance. I'm just across the board. And between that and, again, having the ability to do my own thing. The other thing is I was kind of thinking ahead with three daughters to try to build a company, an entity that would continue to perpetuate all the work that I've done for almost 50 years. Of course, thinking about the legacy. And how about, so you were within, we'll say one organization for 30 years, never moved the book to a new firm. Did the fact that you were so entrenched there and clients had been with you for so long, did it weigh on you that it was just going to be really hard to make the move or that your clients were loyal to the organization rather than loyal to Larry? In other words, how did your longevity at the firm impact your mindset and your opinion of moving? Lewis, I can honestly say that was not a hard decision for me. I knew that my relationship was the relationship with my clients, not the relationship of Wells. They don't know well, they know the name, but they never had the daily activity and the relationship that we have built with the family, with the kids, with multiple generations. I was very comfortable anticipating that the majority of my clients would move. And we had a few that decided not to. Interesting, now a year plus later, probably every other week the phone rings and it's one of those Wells clients that didn't come or saying, hey, Larry, we need to talk. I'd like to come. And it's, it was a difficult thing for me. We left some very large clients behind. On purpose? Absolutely. It was a financial decision. We looked at the amount of time, effort that we were spending servicing them and the amount of revenues that we were generating from them. And I kind of looked at it. This is my business now. I can't afford you as a client. That's amazing. It was a hard decision. It was the right decision in hindsight. And I can honestly say two weeks ago, one of the biggest ones called me. Hey, Larry, how are you? How's the kids? How's the family? How's the new company? And I finally said to him, I'm sorry, what did you really call for? <laughs> and he said, well, we'd like to start bringing some money back. And I said, oh, no, you got Wells Fargo. They're really good. And he said, no, no, no. We went, I said, no, I'm sorry. It doesn't fit. And I said this earlier about advisors, and I, I say it today with clients. I think we're looking harder at clients today when we bring them on, making sure that they fit us and we can do for them what we say we're going to do, and, and it matches up. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of it. We've seen about $50 million of new money. I'm not talking about old Wells money, but $50 million of fresh money come in over the last year. And we see a pretty strong pipeline going into next year. Terrific. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing when you left is we talk about it before. It's the concept of shrink to grow. So leaving behind some revenue to refocus your time and energy and focus on what you think is the right way to run your company going forwards. And it's obviously no one likes leaving revenue behind. There's always surprises in a transition. But I think advisors sometimes surprise themselves about how liberating it is to 
be able to proactively fire a client or not invite a client when it probably would have been pretty hard and uncomfortable to do so if you hadn't moved. So in other words, you were repositioning the business for something greater in the future and probably cleared up some bandwidth to run the business, but also to bring in new money that fit your more ideal client persona. Lewis, you're right on there. I mean, that's kind of where we are. And you alluded to something there a number of years ago. It's been a lot of years ago. I had to fire my first client. And that was a very hard thing to do in the sense of he was abusive to my staff and you couldn't please him. And finally, Larry picks up the phone and says, his name really wasn't Charlie, but Charlie, it doesn't fit here. We can't make you happy. You need to find someplace else to go. No, I don't want to go anywhere. No, you need to find someplace to go because we can't take care of you. And when you did that, you alluded to how good you feel. You feel really good after you did it. Absolutely. Yeah, that seems like in hindsight, a no brainer, but I get it. It's hard to it's hard to make that phone call and proactively hurt your business as far as the metrics and dollars and cents. But thank you for sharing that. So let's talk a little bit about the move and the kind of the thought behind going independent. So you mentioned earlier, interviewed approximately 20 different firms ranging the spectrum of the industry. Were your daughters and other key team members as passionate about you about becoming entrepreneurs? Or were there folks on your team or elements of the team that were thinking more along the lines of going to W2 firm or doing FinNet or doing something that was a little bit more familiar to the way you're operating all those years? I would describe it this way, that 100% of the team wanted to leave Wells Fargo. And I don't know that many of the team members had a thought specifically that they wanted to go to ABC firm or XYZ firm. And I did, along with a couple of my daughters, most of the due diligence and the review of the companies. And I basically said to them, I will take all the financial risk. The risk that you have is bringing your clients with you. I can't control what clients of yours come with you, but here's how it's going to work. Here's the financials for you. And in doing it that way, Larry ultimately made the decision of LPL. Nobody on the firm was uncomfortable with that. Nobody thought that there was a better choice. So we had the support of the whole team, but it was not one that I took a vote of the team and said, hey, which one are we going to pick? That's not what we did. Right. And they trusted me to make the choice. When you say that you made the statement that you would take the financial risk, can you explain what that means and how did that play out? Well, each of the advisors had X amount of revenues, and I basically, I didn't say guarantee, but they knew that they were going to be taken care of financially subject to how much of their book came across. I was paying for all the support, any cost involved to the transaction. It was Larry's cost. It was not any of the advisor's cost. I see. So basically, you set a floor. If, God forbid, this transition doesn't work out, you all are going to be able to make your mortgage payments. You all have a kind of a baseline that you're going to make, but I'll handle the fixed cost of running a business. Likewise, with all my support staff, it was important for me that it was a step up to all the support. And during the transition, my team worked incredible hours and weekends trying to move that much money that fast. And they were all bonused and well taken care of. And I probably overcompensate my team, but they're really worth it. Yeah. Sounds that way. I delegate so much to everybody that there's a lot of stuff in this business I don't want to do, particularly the paper part. So Larry delegates it to somebody. Yep. 
I think that's right. And there's a lot to take away from what you said. We do find that it's very important to be transparent with staff for the move and to at least make the statement that you're going to make the same amount that you did before and probably even provide a raise, maybe give them a bonus because they're the ones in the trenches. They're the ones putting in the work and you want the full team support. let's talk a little bit, kind of the other end of the financial risk is you could have monetized the business to a very significant degree with how big the business was. You hadn't moved before and taken a big deal. Was it hard to give up a very meaningful transition package from moving to another firm? Or how did you justify that? Lewis, and I mentioned to earlier in our discussion, money has never been an issue with me with this. I've had a successful career. My team has done well. This was not going out and to find somebody to pay you a big dollar for your practice. This was, how do I find a firm that I can do a better job for my clients, offer them different and better products, better services? How do I take care of my team? Ultimately, how do I take care of my family? So it was really, if you want to use the term front money, it was never to go out and try to find the most front money, period. My transition was not about not being financially successful at Wells Fargo. It was just the culture that had developed at Wells Fargo. Right. And it seems like you had conviction that the clients were going to follow you. You were building this for your daughters and for many, many years to come. And while, of course, everyone would like to get some money if it's possible and if it's the right fit, for you, it was probably much lower, probably didn't even register on your list of criteria. Let me answer it this way. LPL and I negotiated a nice working arrangement for my advisors, my staff, myself, and it's worked out. They've done everything that they promised to do, and financially, it's been good for everybody. Yep. Perfect. So what were your your criteria when you were evaluating all these different firms? Ultimately, you chose LPL, Strategic Wealth Services, which we would consider a version of supported independence. But what were your punch list items that were non-negotiable, and how did that align with what LPL is doing? One of my concerns that I had was that much of my practice is managed money, and I use probably 20, 25 different money managers. My first question was, out of these 25, how many can I use at LPL? Talk to me about other services that you provide up and beyond. It is overwhelming to me right now on how many services and managers and funds and models and strategies that LPL permits and provides. Almost it's the point where it's hard to keep up with all of them. I was looking for what flexibility we had on the benefit side for, again, my staff, my family, myself. That was important. What are you going to do to help Larry with our marketing? Where Wells, we received hardly any. We have a bi-weekly marketing meeting where today we're doing our own newsletter. We're doing flash emails. We're putting out constant stuff to my clients. I kid about this. I've never been on Facebook. I don't know how to get on Facebook. Probably better for that. Larry's on Facebook every day because the marketing team sees that I am. We had a situation last year where the street in front of my office was totally shut down. Massive construction. No morning. No, no, no. It's just one morning you come in and it's all tore up. By 9.15, we were on Facebook telling all of our clients, if you're coming to see us today, you need to park someplace else and walk in. Now, at Wells Fargo, I could have done that, but it would take me 30 days to get through compliance to release that on social media. That support has really 
changed how we are doing it. The financial planning tools that they were, when you ask them back to the punch list, what do you offer for us? What can we do on financial planning? Because much of what we are doing at this stage relates around that. How does it work? What services? What software? What can, what can't we use? Most of the boxes they checked. And at the end of the day, I guess that's why we're at LPL. Absolutely. In, in this environment, there are many firms that help to provide a soft landing spot for those looking to go independent. In looking at, I would assume, others in that category, was there something about the support that LPL provided above and beyond just kind of the basics of the platform and compliance that really stood out to you? I think the answer is when we met with their SWIFT team, we walked away feeling that if they're going to do all they say that they're going to do, then that's really great for us. And Lewis, I don't want to say I was skeptical, but you always wonder, somebody promises and does the promise come through? And they have. There are times where things haven't happened as fast or different than we thought, but they've been great about getting together, working out whatever problem it is, solving the problem. Yep. That's, that's what you look for. And did you have any concerns initially about being one of tens of thousands of advisors on their platform? Obviously, Wells Fargo is a large firm. LPL by headcount might be even a touch larger. Did that worry you? It did not. And maybe it was because I was so used to Wells not paying a whole lot of attention to me that going forward to LPL, and I thought they would. I kid what I just said there, but serious that no, because of the size and I don't feel that I work for that big firm. And because of the support of the SWIFT team, we have our own marketing. We have our own financial officer. We have our own different segments of the practice that there's someone to call on. And we have frequent meetings across the board. So the support there is fantastic. Yeah. And now the transition's done. It went extremely well. You're in growth mode now, thinking about what's next for the business. And with some hindsight, do you think LPLs delivered on the promises and kind of your expectations going into the relationship? They absolutely have. And they are very actively working with me and my team as far as the growth mode. We've actually had people in my office within the last two weeks talking about how are we going to do this, figuring out how we're going to plug in the infrastructure that we have built that other advisors could tag into and not have to do all that on their own in the sense of payroll and benefits and retirement and all that, which it's taken a while to get all that right. So we're at the stage now where a small team, a big team could plug into what we built and operate through us, around us. And I have a lot of support and I'm going to continue to hire more support, which really plays into promoting growth. Mm -hmm. And how about so at over a billion in assets, you had a, a large team, you had folks that were seemingly really excited to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of running the business was one of the 20 options you considered just standing up your own RIA firm and working through Schwab or Fidelity or one of the major custodians, or was that not really on the radar screen? Lewis, we talked about it. I was not comfortable that I had the manpower to do that. That's a big jump. And I truly didn't think that I was ready to personally do that myself. And Lewis, know where I come from. I enjoy the client part, the interaction with the clients, their families, looking for the next client, if you want to call it the hunter. And I've delegated all this other stuff to my team and daughters. I wasn't comfortable enough to make that step. 
Right. You were okay paying a little bit extra and giving up some autonomy and control because for you, you wanted whatever gave you the opportunity to stay focused on your passions and your unique ability and to ultimately go where your team could probably punch a little bit above their weight class as far as all the support and scaffolding they got. I think that's 100% accurate. Perfect. How about the initial pitch to clients? So I, you said that the Wells name was certainly not helping your case, but it's still Wells Fargo. It's still Warren Buffett's bank, and it's a very well-known firm. And LPL, certainly a publicly traded company, a terrific company, but not necessarily one that has brand awareness with clients. Did you have any folks that were uncomfortable that you weren't working for a large bank anymore? We had a few of that, but the pitch was pretty straightforward. We were leaving Wells Fargo because we had didn't think they could no longer provide us the best service to us, which meant the best service to the client. And the relationship is not with Wells Fargo. The relationship is with Larry or Marjana or anybody else on the team. And we had very little pushback over the name. We had a few, but that's not been a real obstacle for us to overcome. Which is great. So there's never going to be a perfect move. And while, of course, you'd want everyone to come, like we talked about, it seems like you move for the right reasons and the right clients ultimately followed you. Again, I would agree with that totally. And I think looking back through all the changes and name changes we had, it's always been Larry, the team, people servicing you. It's not the name on the door. Right. How about in, in prospecting cases or if it's a competitive situation, does LPL on the business card instead of Wells Fargo, is it positive or negative? Oh, it's positive. And the problem, and I hate to admit this with Wells, has been the headline news for all these years of all the wrongdoings and the FINRA problems and the SEC problems and the banking problems. It's an issue with anybody working at Wells Fargo. You can say it's not, but it truly is. Right. Two more questions to round us out here. This has been an amazing conversation. So what do you see the firm looking like, let's say, 10 years from now? We have this conversation in the year 2032, almost 2033. What does Boggs and Company look like? Lewis, I would think that we are two to four times the size that we are today. I think we have a presence in a lot more cities. I think I'll have the opportunity to develop many of these young ladies that are working for me, either into advisors or licensed assistants. And I didn't mention it earlier, I've really enjoyed the new assistants that we've been hiring. I'm back to spending time mentoring them. And I like that. I like teaching and it's been fun watching them learn. I would think that we will plug in a number of different practices. I think my children will take more active roles than they are right now. They're pretty active, but more responsibility. And I think that's probably where we are. I don't see us selling out to someone else unless there was an incredible fit that we could put two practices together. I would hope that we are still independent. Terrific. And known as a crystal ball, but that sounds like a pretty good outcome to me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it one way or another. One last question. It's what we ask every guest who joins us. Any parting words of wisdom for colleagues that are at Wells or really any financial advisor who might be listening to this and hoping to to pick up a thing or two from your journey? Well, I would say this. Anybody working at Wells or working in another wirehouse, and if you ever have thought about independence, you really need to take the time, do your due diligence, 
and look at your practice and how it might fit as an independent. I was dedicated and loyal to Wells for 40 some years. My regret is that I didn't make a change now once I know what I knew 10 years. I would open a conversation. I would independently answer questions for anybody out there. And I think we have to look at where we're going in the next decade. I think now over the last 50 years, the industry has changed so much. In the old days, we had flat commissions. Everybody charged the same. There was limited data out there. You were dependent on your advisor to get quotes to see what market trends are. There's data feeds 24 hours a day, seven days a week at this stage. It's all changed. I look back early days, a strong salesperson was really a successful broker. That's not what drives success today. It's the advisor that takes a holistic long-term approach to financial planning, looks at international, looks at the micro and macro economics that's going on in the world. But I think the really great advisors out there today really get to know the families that we're dealing with and become part of those families, that they are part of any major decision-making, good or bad. And I think in many ways, we've been successful because we have really got to know families in a very intimate way, and they count on you for just about everything. And I think that's what keeps me working and keeps me happy and kind of keeps Larry doing what he does every day. Fantastic. Larry, this has been a eye-opening conversation. I really appreciate your candor and transparency with how you're running the business, thinking about the next generation, the reasons you moved, and, and how it's going. So congratulations on a very successful transition and for building a thriving business. Lewis, thank you very much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Larry's perspective is an important one for advisors who are reflecting on their abilities to serve clients, not only now, but well into the future. Because one thing that is certain is change. And if limited by an entity larger than yourself, then it may be time to explore your options. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way of staying informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. You can feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578, which is my cell, or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. You can see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. It will let other advisors know it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.